Ah, yes. Welcome to MLB Morning Coffee's 30 Teams in 30 Days. A happy Saturday morning to you and yours, or whenever you may be listening to this. This is an evergreen show, so listen to it now. Listen to it later. We have had a great lineup of guests on this week, and I am really excited to talk to our next guest. We're in the Big Apple, Queens specifically, previewing the New York Mets, and we have Mike Silva, host of the Talking Mets podcast, to do it with us. Mike, thank you so much for jumping on. How are you this fine day? Uh, I'm doing great, and what the beautiful thing is, the weather's turning. We have baseball games. I still have a little bit of snow on my lawn. Uh, you know, it's been snowing and ice for about 30 days. But, uh, Greg, as you know, it's that time of the year, March, depending on where you are in the country, where the sun is out a little later. You get that feel. You know when you're outside and you're like, this feels different. The, the, the sky feels different. And then you have baseball and the Super Bowl's over. And that grind from January 1 post-holidays to spring training gives you that hope of the nice weather and baseball and all the things that I'm sure we're going to talk about. So I'm doing great. And it looks like we're turning the corner on multiple levels here in New York. So uh, I'm happy to be with you. It's a great season so far for the Knicks. The Mets have had quite an offseason themselves, and that's where I want to start. It has been a tumultuous offseason again for New York, to say the least. Last year, they had to fire the manager that they hired without him ever having managed a game. This offseason, for those that are not familiar, the Mets had an ownership change. The Wilpon family, family sold it to Steve Cohen. They hired a general manager to work under Sandy Alderson after firing Brody Van Wagenen. That GM didn't even last until opening day as Jared Porter was fired amid sexual harassment allegations, which have turned out to be true. And then they're also dealing with some really bad residue following their former manager, Mickey Calloway, who was also accused of similar things. Through it all, Mike, do you think the Mets have made it to the other side relatively unscathed? Uh, as much as you can, I mean, let's back up with all that stuff because those things we didn't know were going to happen. Think about just from a standard baseball standpoint. You change ownership November 1st. So they couldn't do anything until November 1st. They couldn't even – Sandy Olderson had talked about, well, maybe if they had the ownership situation earlier, they could have acclaimed Brad Hand. Literally, the closing was around November 1st. Now you have Olderson, who's named the president, who wants to hire a GM, has to hire a staff, has to upgrade the analytics department, has to build a roster. Now, a normal team that was collapsing and, and gutting the whole thing, who cares? It doesn't matter when, when this all happens because you're not competing and winning. But they have some good bones in this roster, and they have a fan base that uh, you have to leverage. They're ready to win, and you have to capture a generation. So think of the historical difficulty of that in a normal situation. Now add in the peripheral stuff, the Porter situation. The Callaway stuff, I think that's dragged them in. I don't think that that's been as much them. I think that will turn out to be more Cleveland in the long run. But you hire a GM uh, where really he was looking to mentor this guy. They, these are young guys, Zach Scott and, and Jared Porter. And what's different today is that when you hired a GM, I think that you handed them the job, a complete type of uh, product. Now it's almost like corporate America where, well, we're going to give a try for somebody who has potential and let's mentor them. So that adds complexity. And then you fire them. And now you bring Zach Scott in as the number one guy. So think of all that chaos and think of how they're viewed as a team. And this is, if they actually can win a championship or go far, think about historically significant and difficult the task is. And I've had some criticisms of Alderson in the past, but I give him a lot of credit at his age, his career arc, where he could be relaxing. 
he took on this challenge and not many people want to take on the New York challenge anymore. So put, I think that kind of puts in perspective the off season and, and typically what they have in front of them. Steve Cohen seems like somebody that is willing to do whatever it takes to win. And this may be an overly simplistic question, Mike, but I'll ask it anyway. What is going to be the organizational difference between the Steve Cohen regime and what we've seen for the past few years under the Wilpon family that from what it looks like as an outsider was losing money hand over fist? Well, they certainly didn't have cash flow. Uh, There's been books about that. Uh, uh, Wilpon Follies is an old book written by a, a man named Howard Megdal. Great guest. If you could ever get him that he was one of the first ones to say, Hey, uh, when the Madoff situation happened and basically the trustee that was out there to collect uh, whoever had money made from the situation turned around and said, these guys don't have anything worth going after. That was the sign that the cash flow situation wasn't there. And Essentially, the issue was the Mets were run uh, as an old school family business. You have what you could spend. You don't overspend. There's nothing wrong with that. But in a world of private equity, in a world of the Guggenheim group taking over the Dodgers and these very wealthy people like Steve Cohen who have endless resources on our, on our essentially Fortune 500 companies in their own right, it's very hard to stay ahead of the time because if you have X dollars, do you spend it on signing Dylan Batances? Or do you put it towards the analytics department? There was always a choice between that. And then because of the fluidness of that cash flow, the fluidness of that budget, there'd always be pushes at the end of the regular season you would see during games commercials. Get your season tickets now. Pay ahead of time and get whatever, some kind of perk. Well, that's like any other business that needs cash flow. Come in today, pay ahead of time. And, 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 and it made it very difficult for the baseball operations to run the off season to build a roster, because if you had money show up in January that you didn't have in November, well, you could spend that money, but maybe you would have spent it differently 60 days ago if you knew you had it. So as you go forward, the money is the obvious thing, but what I'm hoping Cohen brings in a positive way, and I know there's a lot of negativity about wall street and hedge funds, and there's a lot of negativity and there's a lot of unhealthiness working in finance. I have friends who work in finance. It's not always the healthiest place. You can make a lot of money, but it takes its toll. But what I think it will bring is a mindset of constantly pushing to think out of the box, constantly looking to compete and win. I think Fred Wilpon had a certain idealism that is cute. Go to the ballpark, bring your lunch like the old Brooklyn Dodgers and enjoy the game. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's a lot of people that want to do that. But Greg, you know, winning is really what brings people to the ballpark. They'll bring their lunch. They'll enjoy the game. They'll get connected. But you need more, especially if you're going to drag in that casual fan. We forget you and I are big time fans. We're going to watch the game no matter what. But there's a lot of people that have other things. Their kids have other things going on. You're competing with those other things. And what you need is an exciting product that can attract those people so that now you have your version of the Yankees or the Dodgers or the Cubs uh, in a beautiful ballpark in a surrounding area that I believe post-pandemic has the potential to be a really good village and a really good destination. And it's a shame it hasn't happened in 50 years. Um, so I hope that a lot of that mindset, along with obviously cash flow, changes things. Whether you like how the guy made the money or not, different story. But so far, how many owners are engaging their fan base? And it's, it's new, like Steve Cohen. And when you hear agents and players invigorated because there's somebody who wants to win, think about winning now is something unique. 
And that's what this is all about. You know, yeah, going to the ballpark is fun, but at some point, how many 95 lost seasons do you want to enjoy? You're a fan. You'll, you have some good moments in those seasons, but they wear you out after a while. And I think for an organization like the New York Mets, there's an expectation, and I talked a little bit about it yesterday with Sean Sears when we did our Cubs preview. There's an expectation that a big market team should spend money. Like, there, in no scenario, in my opinion, should you not have a top five payroll for a team in New York, a team in Los Angeles, or a team in Chicago. It just shouldn't happen. So for the Mets, having an owner that is willing to spend the money and willing to understand that if you build it, they will come. Like, I've been to City Field. I've been to New Yankee Stadium. City Field blows it out of the water. It's in a better area. It's a better ballpark. And Mets fans, they're dying for a winner. The best Met fan is a better fan than the average Yankee fan. And this is from a San Franciscan. So no. going off of your point, like you put the product out there, people are going to come. And what the Mets have done so far in the offseason season. When fans are allowed back, people will come. And I'll I'll piggyback on that with something I brought up earlier in the offseason, specifically when they hired Zach Scott and Jared Porter, because I listened to both of them on the Mark Feinson podcast, which is a great podcast for anybody who wants to learn about executives and what their plight is and how they make it through. And I said, I remember going on tours of Fenway Park, 1999, 2000, in the midst of that curse becoming such an albatross and i and i saw how the city was a fan base that just needed that push that mindset change and sure enough a few years later theo epstein and john henry and all the things that happened in 2004 and look at what the red sox became i see the mets in a similar situation so when they hired jared porter and zach scott i thought the way they did it in tandem because each had strengths was the right thing from a baseball standpoint we didn't know anything about porter's background at the time Uh, But most importantly, they came from a team where they understood what it meant to the city and 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 how difficult the task was at hand. And they could bring a lot of those learnings to the Mets because this is a bit of an albatross. They've had some great moments in the last 40 years. They've had some tremendous heartbreak. And, you know, they're not the media darlings because the media wants to make them the little brother that just misses the rim. You know, like that photo that. That, but you know, keep trying and you have the hand right up there. And it's good when they fail because it gives you a laugh. Well, you know what? Being on the other side of that is not funny after a while. And it's frustrating. And some of that virtual goes against uh, the players. And it makes it difficult when these players come over. That's why with Francisco Lindor, uh, before you hand him a 10 year deal, does he know what he's getting into? Because it's all good, it's all fun now. Um, so I, I compare a lot of where the Mets are at to where the Red Sox were 1999, 2000, 2001. Those are good teams. There was just something missing. And some of it was the energy and the mindset and, and obviously a new owner and a, and, a, and a Hall of Fame GM who came in. We didn't know he was a Hall of Famer at the time. Made a difference. Maybe this is the Mets version of that. What, 20 years later? We are with Mike Silva of the Talking Mets podcast. He has been very gracious so far with his time. And we're going to dive deeper into the details of the Mets. Before I get into players specifically, Mike. Luis Rojas is really the one guy that has survived this regime change, and he wasn't the Mets' first choice at manager. Carlos Beltran was that last year, and he gets fired before he ever manages a game. What are the early returns on Rojas, and do you see him as a long-term manager for when this team becomes on the level of the Dodgers where they're competing for an NL title every year? 
That's a great question. It's hard to answer 100% certainty. What I can say is all the early results are good. He, look, he knows the organization, and I think there's a value. I've always said the Mets needed somebody that grew up with the organization, understand what's being a Met is, and and build. I'm with one. I'm, I'm into that uh, Ron Gardenhire, Tommy Lasorda type of situation. You don't want to change a manager every three, four years, bring somebody in who's a big name. Um, you know, I thought for a long time Wally Backman could be that guy. You know, but the game passed Wally by, and there were other issues with Wally that prevented him from being uh, a manager, at least with Rojas. And it's a weird situation because it almost became like a shotgun marriage. He has great pedigree learning under his father. I mean, Felipe Lou is a respected manager who had a lot of success. Um, and the stakeholders that he needs to manage, because it's not just about the in game. To me, the in game is the thing that you could learn. I mean, how many things can you really screw up a hit and run? A substitution. How many times do you sit back and say, what well, was the pinch hitter that lost the game? The bullpen's different, and that's tricky, and that's something that is also part of the front office and the game plan and the collaboration, and, and certainly I didn't think he did a great job with the bullpen, but I'm willing for him to look and learn a little bit about that because I think there's a lot of other managers that are bad that have won World Series. Ned Yost, I thought, was a bad manager, uh, and he learned how to manage a bullpen at some point, but can you manage the media? Very important because them being on your side frames public opinion, managing that clubhouse, getting the players to buy into you, but not being their friend by doing it in a way where you're there for them, but also holding the, them accountable. And then most importantly, and this is for Roas, how do you manage up now? Because the front office doesn't just give you a roster and then hang out in the press box for you know a season. They're involved. They're your bosses. Uh, Zach Scott's got to like him. Sandy's got to like him. And even the owner to a certain degree has to feel comfortable with them. Um, and if they win, I think he'll be fine. The real question will be, what is the expectation? If they make the playoffs this year and he makes a blunder in terms of a questionable bullpen decision, is that what's going to knock him out? Or are they going to look at things as a whole? I think Alderson is that kind of guy. Does a big name manager come become available? And that becomes, i.e., like when Girardi was available, a uh, different situation. Uh, I always think it's important to look back and get, and remember Buck Showwater, Joe Girardi, even Tommy Lasorda. There were no-name managers. Davey Johnson was a no-name manager when he came in. Now they're not, and they're looked at a different way. So sometimes we have to be patient and let the no-name become the name, and who knows five years from now uh, what that looks like. I think there's a lot of good from what I hear about him from a communication standpoint, and he's a level-balanced guy. Think about how hard it is in this town with all the microphones in your face. Look how quickly things unraveled for Callaway. Forget the off-the-field stuff. Callaway was having issues on baseball-related topics very quickly in his tenure. Rojas has been balanced. And in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of shutdowns, in the middle of ownership change, if he could survive this, I think he's got a great shot. So there's still a lot of questions to be answered. And ultimately, if you do bad at managing the bullpen, you and I know you'll get fired because that's what people see. But I can tell you, the players love him. You know, Alderson at least has some kind of connection to him. And, um, you know, short of an embarrassing uh, display uh, or something crazy that derails them, I, I think he's got a shot at sticking around. Now, you know, someone like A.J. Hinch becomes available and everybody wants him because that's the savior. Things could change. But I always look at that as newspaper headline moves. And I think the Mets have to be careful just because you have the money now. Newspaper headline moves aren't what, what you aren't what wins you championships. We, we know that. But speaking of a newspaper headline move, 
probably the most monumental trade of this offseason was the Mets acquiring not only Francisco Lindor, but Carlos Carrasco from the Cleveland Indians. And it was a monumental move because Lindor is a generational talent and a generational talent at a position that the Mets haven't had that type of talent since the early days of Jose Reyes. It's not a question as to why the Mets make a move like this, but the question remains is how quickly do you get an extension done? Because you don't make a trade like this to have Lindor around for only one year. You had brought up a little bit earlier in the conversation giving him a 10-year deal. I think Fernando Tatis Jr. somewhat set the baseline for what these under-30 shortstops are going to get, guys like him, Lindor, and to an extent Javier Baez with the Cubs. So I guess my next question for you is, Mike, how quickly does an extension get done? And is it more of a Tatis deal where you lock him up for the rest of his time? Or is it more like a Trevor Bauer deal where you overpay for just a couple of years and then see where you're at before you give him a longer term deal? I've been taking a different approach. I think those are both great questions. I think to answer from a contract standpoint, I think the Tatis deal, because of the age difference, might be a little bit more of a stretch. You might be looking more higher AAV, shorter term deal. Uh if there's a willingness to go over the salary cap, but more importantly, I think what people have to remember is this, uh, the pain that they will experience if they lost Lindor to free agency with what they gave up, there's always going to be pain. And I think uh, uh, Jimenez is going to be a nice player. He's had a nice spring so far, not so high on Rosario. And we'll see about the young, you know, minor leaguers. I've heard good and bad things about them, but Jimenez is the guy I thought Jimenez, you know, people compared him to Omar Vizquel. I thought he'd be a very strong component player, great glove, underrated hitter, uh, but he's not Francisco Lindor. When you give somebody a 10 year deal. And I spoke to a former player about this uh, uh, that understands this. They're now on the Pantheon. Once you give him that 10 year deal, he's on the Pantheon and you are married. You're not divorcing. And if you get a divorce, it's going to be difficult. Look at David Wright. His body broke down almost immediately after he got the deal. And I love David Wright, but the last five years of his career, six years of his career, he was an albatross financially, and it prevented the Mets from making moves. Now, I know you have Steve Cohen's money, but this is going to be your core. This is going to be a guy that's going to make up 10, 15% of your payroll. Does he want to be here? Is he a fit? We know what he can do on paper. Now, he has had two years where there's some decline. So I've always been the advocate that's, uh, that, that said, look, we have a, a situation in ownership where they don't have to capitalize on the perfect opportunity to sign a player like they had to do with DeGrom. They knew if DeGrom went to free agency that there was going to be a bidding war, it might get expensive, and they may get snuffed out. I don't see that with Steve Cohen. I know people will bring up Springer. I know people will bring up Bauer. Springer, they bounced on. They could have had him. They decided to bounce on him because they weren't comfortable going the extra mile for the player. Bauer, I don't think anybody could criticize them for losing that out. The, the zip code in California is, you're out in California. It's beautiful out there. It's always going to be better than New York. I mean, think about what's going on uh, across the span. Uh, people, the West Coast and the NBA is always better than the East Coast. The weather's better. The players want to live out there. You know, I, I don't blame them. Um, but you're talking so, about San Franciscan. Bauer went yeah. to L.A. I am always going to take New York over L.A. any day. <laughs> that, that's we, a difference. <laughs> New York and Jersey is like San Francisco yeah. and Los Angeles. Yeah, it's sunny. It's warm yeah. in L.A., but you don't have the same grit that we do up in San Francisco. That's right. Yeah, there you go. So my point here is this. Let's make sure he's happy here. Let's make sure he's comfortable here. Let's make sure this is the right marriage because 
we don't have to, you know, it's like uh, I use a dating. You don't have to capture the woman. You want to court them. You want them to really want to be with you. You don't want to like say, well, you got to be with me because you got no other choices. Um, and I think that's where I would go with Lindor. And, and, and we'll see. And I'm, I'm based on everything I hear. All the little blips on performance are anomalies. I want to, I'll throw 2020 out too wacky of a season, but there were some declines in 2019. And one thing uh, the, the Cleveland beat writer for the athletic had said, and his name is escaping me right now. And I apologize is that he's starting to chase breaking pitches out of the strike zone with runners in scoring position. Well, that tells you that's a guy that's pressing. Now he's going to be the focus. This is a brutal town. I don't care if there's only 10% of city field uh, uh, capacity right now, he'll hear the boobs. And they'll give you some rope. And because he's not a former Yankee, they'll give him maybe a little bit more rope than maybe a Robinson Cano would get. But Carlos Beltran had issues coming here. Mike Piazza had issues coming here. Superstars that come here with expectations have a baptism by fire. And how they handle it really will go a long way into saying, is this the right fit? Piazza, he had a great September in 1998. He resigned here and he took on the challenge. Beltron had a horrible 2005 and he had the collision that in 2006, he got off to a rough start, but all of a sudden he had a 41 home run MVP type campaign. All was forgiven. Even after the strikeout, I know there was some thing about him about the, uh, he still was a very uh, liked player, you know, criticized player, but it wasn't like he couldn't compete and win here. Where will Lindor be? And you want to make sure that before you hand them that 10 year deal or seven year deal for 35, 40 million, that he wants to be here and he's a fit here. And I know that in an analytics generation, that doesn't make sense, but believe me, I've seen this with other players. It's important because once we're married for 10 years, you ain't getting out of that contract and that could get ugly. And then that's what it impacts your ability to build a team around them. We're here with Mike Silva of the Talking Mets podcast here on MLB Morning Coffee's 30 Teams in 30 Days. Before I get to my next question, you brought up something I wanted to touch on real quick. With Robinson Cano suspended for the entire 2021 season, he's got two years left on his deal after this. He's not a part of the future nor a part of the present. Is there any way they can get out of that deal, or is it an Albert Pujols or Chris Davis situation where he's on the roster for whatever purposes he may serve, and you just got to write it out until the contract's done? Probably got to write it out until the contract's done. Maybe you – I mean, look, they've, they've had a little bit of precedent of releasing guys. They released Luis Castillo and Oliver Perez back in the day. Not quite as much money. So maybe that would be the case. Robinson Cano could still hit. Uh, he had a good year last year. Uh, whether you want to say it's the steroids or not, I mean, we could debate that. But I have a hard time believing Robinson Cano's career is based on steroids completely. Um, are there options in teams? You know, could you go and say to a team, you know, you want a DH for the American league? I'm assuming there's going to be a DH next year. Uh, I, I, I have to think that's in the future. Now, if there's not a DH, it's a little bit more problematic because now you have a, a guy that potentially you have to bench. Um, but I think there's only a few teams that would try, you know, to bring them on. Funny enough, maybe you call the Yankees and say, look, I'll take on a lot of this salary. I don't want anything back. Do you want them? Do you need them? Do you have a need in that lineup? The answer is probably no, but right now he's on the team. The interesting thing is I've heard good things about him as a presence in the clubhouse, as a mentor. Um, so sometimes I wonder, is the media perception worse than what reality is? I don't get crazy on steroids because there's a lot more nuance to that than injecting something into you in the body. Look, I could take steroids right now. I promise you, Greg, I can't go hit 300 this year. I can't. <laughs> I promise you. It's not going to happen. I don't even think I could play a competent outfield or first base. I'm, I, I'm no good anymore. So, uh, 
I think they're going to be stuck with them. And then I, I think it's going to come down to, do you want him on the roster? How is he accepted by his teammates? And are you willing to bite the bullet and have the sunk cost and release him? And then maybe have him go somewhere else. Cause somebody always gives every, a, a guy a second chance and see him put up some numbers. He can hit, might not be able to play the field, but he can hit. Look at those numbers. They don't, they don't lie. He was one of their better hitters last year. We're here with Mike Silva of the Talking Mets podcast. Now to actual players that are on the team. Pete Alonzo had an insane rookie year where he hit 53 homers, drove in 120 runs. Consensus rookie of the year. By all accounts, last year had a solid year given the pandemic expectations. What does he have to do to take his game to the next level? Because I believe he could be a generational superstar if he takes that next step. I definitely think the difference between Pete and I'll even go further, maybe go towards the post all-star break 2019. Cause if you go to baseball reference, you break down the numbers from, you know, post all-star break, he had a, a little bit of a dive and then he picked it back up. But his 2020 pandemic sample size is very similar to his second half. And I think some of that had to do, it, certainly during the pandemic season, he chased a lot more. Hitters went inside, knocked them off the plate, made him fish a little bit. Part of that goes back to what I said with Lindor. Anytime you're anxious and you want to make something happen, and you know this covering the sport, you've got to let the game come to you. Because the more you chase, the more you try to force the action, that's when th- bad things happen. Pete Alonso, to me, absolutely could be a 250 hitter with 35 home runs and 100 RBIs, 110 RBIs, a good player and an emotional leader and a positive guy. Now, does that make him the MVP? Does that make him Lindor? Does that make him Mike Trout? Does that even mean he's the best player on the team? No. And I think that's where what you just said is the interesting thing. You view him as a generational talent, as maybe a top 10 player in a game, maybe like how the Yankee fans evaluate Aaron Judge. Uh, that could be the case, but I'm not expecting that because I'm not sure that's who he is. The first half of 2019, he didn't chase. The first half of 2019, the pitchers didn't know him. I mean, how many times if you go back, they were grooving fastballs to him. They didn't learn. Hey, good. You groove this guy a fastball, it's going. I don't care if it's dead ball, old ball, new ball, it's going. Now you push him off the plate. You took a little, little bit of uh, a breaking situation. Things are different. If the good news is this, based on the, the, the metrics of hard hit rate, based on what he accomplished in 2020, that's not a bad player. That's a very solid first baseman. Is that an MVP player? Probably not. Is that the best player in the Mets? Probably not. But his value to the Mets with the emotion, with the maturity, with the can-do attitude. And that's so important in an environment where I think the players feel there's so much can't-do attitude with ownership on down, I think will make a difference. So I'm, I'm bullish on Pete uh, in terms of being who I, I, I – his floor to me is acceptable. Now, is it acceptable to everybody else outside the Met circle and the Met fan base? That's different. And it's important to understand managing expectations is always a difficult thing for fans because what we want him to be – and what he really is, there might be a gap, and then he's deemed a failure. But in reality, the landing spot is a pretty good place. So I'm okay with what I think his landing spot will be. If he is what you say he could be, I'll be even happier. But if all I worry about is him being what you want him to be, which you described generational, I have a feeling there might be a high percentage chance of disappointment. Which is understandable. If your expectations are lower, you're happier when they're exceeded. And I think sure. that that's the, that's the overall And it's a good argument. floor. It's a good floor. I'm not saying he's a bad player. It's a good floor. I'm just not sure first half Pete 
is the Pete we're going to see forever. That's just, I guess, my point was. It's a great segue into my next player because I follow college baseball, and I follow college baseball on the West Coast. And one of the best college baseball players many years ago now was Michael Conforto. And in 2020, Michael Conforto had breakthroughs in his batting average and his on-base percentage. While the power numbers have always been there for him in a Mets uniform, the on-base, the average, and the OPS have not been there, with the exception of 2017, where his OPS was at 939. The Mets have an interesting decision that they have to make on Conforto because he's an unrestricted free agent after this year. So my question to you is, is this trend, even though it was a small sample size, where he hits over 300 for the first time, where he has an on-base over 400 for the first time, is this the Michael Conforto that you think he is now, or was it an aberration, and will they have to consider moving on from him after this upcoming year? Very similar, and I think this will tie into how long the contract is. Look, I'm not the biggest, you know, whatever those fan graph dollar values are, uh, go buy them. You know, they have Lindor, $40 million a year player. That's close to what he is, but I don't think I'd pay him $40 million. I try to get him for less. Would Conforto, he, I've been saying this for a while, and people laughed at it. They're not laughing as much anymore. Look at the Bryce Harper contract. He's Bryce Harper. Now, I know Bryce Harper had the 2015 MVP year, and he has this potential, and maybe some injuries have derailed him from that. Michael Conforto wasn't on the cover of Sports Illustrated, but look at the numbers. They're very, take him since 2015, past the MVP year, very similar. Uh, Harper's getting $26 million a year. Conforto will get $26 million a year. Now, do I think he's the player that uh, uh, he was, you know, with a 150 OPS plus and probably more of an MVP type candidate with a high batting average on balls in play and, uh, you know, seem to be a more complete hitter? I hope. If he continues, and he's talked about it, to use the entire field, where Conforto, I think, has gotten into problems in the past, and he had still very good results, a very similar guy like Bryce Harper, uh, was that he tried to be uh, too much of a home run pull, pull player. You saw less of that last year. Let's also remember, if you go back to 2017, before he hurt his shoulder, and that's a big thing. The guy was an all-star in 2017. He had that terrible shoulder industry where it ripped out of his socket. Very similar year and in a larger sample size than what he had last year. And then he had to recover the following year. That's not something that's all of a sudden you come to spring training. The shoulder was ripped out of the socket. That's a serious for a hitter. That's a serious thing. So I think he definitely look, if he regresses to league average, a strikeout machine, uh, you know, he's not going to get the big contract, but I think he's a very, he's a good guy. He showed some leadership last year during the walk-off that I think, uh, earn him some respect from his teammates. And that's so important in this day and age with these young players, they're going to respect their peers more. They're going to respect uh, Sandy Alderson coming down and telling them what to do. And uh, you know, look, if Bryce Harper gets a contract of 13 years, I'm not saying Conforto should get something like that, but he's a 25 to $30 million a year player on his floor. He's that if he gives you anything more, that's, you know, gravy. Um, so similar to Alonzo, I think what you're going to get is somewhere in between. And that's somewhere in between is an all-star. And you know what? Maybe not a Hall of Famer, but an all-star. And the only difference between him and Bryce Harper, and I know people are saying, Mike, you're crazy. Go to baseball reference. This is I'm not making this up. Go compare the numbers. Uh, put a blindfold on the names. They're very similar. 
I think doing those player A, player B blind comps are actually the best way to truly evaluate a player. I really yep. do. So I think everybody that's listening, go and do that. I've seen some of Harper's numbers, and the batting average numbers are not great. The strikeout rate's not great. So I think that that's a great point that you make in regards to Michael Conforto. Yeah, and the, it's run creation. What I'm learning a lot as I go along, and I'm not a stat head. I'm, I'm a guy that grew up watching baseball in the 80s where we, I collected Topps baseball cards. Uh, I'm, 40, I'm 44. So back then, if you hit 300, you could be Rafael Santana. You had a good year. Um, uh, I, but I understand the value of looking at players differently. Now, sometimes we give players more credence. I think the thing we do today more, and I think you'll see a little bit maybe with this Khalil Lee, we'll see how he works out the prospect they acquired from Kansas City. We like to look at tools scouting tools. Oh, this guy has raw power. This guy has this. And then I look at the, the minor league numbers. They never hit. They never perform. Results matter. Let's not get that. But you can also look at a guy and understand just because he had 250, 260 doesn't mean he's a bad player. Look, Gary Carter didn't hit 330 every year, but he produced and he drove in runs and he did other things. And, and sometimes it's not just about those raw total counting numbers. Runs creation, I think, and fan graphs use it as a great number. I've used it a lot to show people how valuable Brandon Nimmo is, a guy that is not sexy. Nice guy, goofy guy. He always has a smile on his face, runs to first base. He's top 10 in runs creation uh, because he's always on base, whether it be hit by pitch, a walk. He's got power. He's got speed. It just doesn't stand out. It's not sexy. So if you start to dive into some of these analytics, uh, although they're counting, they're not process-oriented analytics, it could tell you what kind of player they are. And, and Conforto was still a very solid player, even when he hit 225, uh, 240, 250, because he's driving and runs, he's hitting home runs, and he's hitting for power. We're here with Mike Silva of the Talking Mets podcast. Mike, I follow the Chicago White Sox. My dad's from Chicago. The White Sox have been a part of my family forever. And James McCann, to me, was a solid player, but not a guy that you'd give a four-year contract to. I don't necessarily have a problem with the average annual value, which is $10 million, but I didn't think, given that the White Sox had signed Yasmani Grandal to a three-year contract, I didn't think that James McCann was going to get a four-year contract. I thought that he would get a three-year deal. I didn't think he was going to get a four-year deal from anybody. So tell me, what's the talk about James McCann, and do they view him as the catcher that is going to help lead this pitching staff for the next few years as the Mets start to get competitive again? That's very interesting uh, comment coming from someone in Chicago because I'm learning about James McCann. And I could tell you, I'm, I'm not sure offensively he's going to be the player that he was in Chicago for two years. But I think his floor, again, he's, he's going to be similar to Wilson Ramos at this point in Wilson Ramos' career. Can he pop you 15 home runs? Uh, can he give you good at-bats? You know, Is he slightly above league average? I'm okay with that. What I've been impressed with McCann, and I heard him on an interview with Howie Rose and Susan Waldman here in New York, um, and maybe this is a narrative and maybe this is him overplaying his craft. He's very intelligent in terms of the way he looks at pitching. I mean, here's a guy that when he was in Toledo as a, as a minor leaguer had a, a book that he put together himself on all the different pitchers so that he could help them hone in their craft and triple a and triple a guys usually just want to worry about getting their, their numbers. So they get called up. That's the ground level stuff. 
Remember something Bill James talked about when uh, Jared Porter was hired, why he liked Jared Porter as a baseball person. There's a lot of ground level stuff in organizations that guys like you and I, Greg, don't see. We can only talk about the newspaper headline stuff. When you and I'm sure you've talked to people in the sport, when you start to really talk about what they do, it's amazing because there's so much more that we don't know. I think James McCann does a lot of ground level stuff, especially now with analytics, which essentially has been an issue for the Mets behind the plate for a long time. I've always been a catch and throw guy behind the plate. Give me whatever you can offensively. Martin Maldonado was a guy I advocated for the Mets to get for so long. Never happened. Uh, Wilson Ramos was not my first choice. JT Ramuto, all honesty, would have been a perfect choice. Had some concerns about his health, but I knew why the Mets didn't want to wait all winter to drag that thing out. So they probably overpaid for James McCann. But one thing he could be is this late career uh, guy that blossoms both on the intellectual side of the game as well as the offensive side. Think about how the Yankees brought in Scott Brocious. Different position, right? Who the hell was Scott Brocious? Turned out to be a very solid player for a championship team. Good defensive player, leader, heady guy. I think that's kind of where they see McCann. Now, are they overrating him? I don't know. But I can tell you he's a guy that has shown a lot of willingness to be as good as he can behind the plate. And I have to think whatever he gives me offensively is going to be a hell of a lot more than those Martin Maldonado guys, right? Uh, it may not be uh, you know MVP level like Chicago. And uh, you know what's surprising? Grandel was a guy the Mets had offered a four-year deal before they got Ramos. And I guess he wasn't ready to sign it. Uh, but remember, Grandel also got benched in the postseason by the Dodgers. That, nobody talks about that. So it's interesting that the White Sox picked him over McCann. So I, I could see where you're going. That's a little crazy what the Mets are doing. But maybe there's a lot of ground-level stuff that McCann does that you and I don't see. And certainly it's not on the back of the baseball card that uh, it's incredibly important for this pitching staff and uh, incredibly important for them uh, where they are right now. I will actually say before I move on to my next point, and this is something that's really important for Mets fans to look at, Lucas Giolito, prior to James McCann being a starting backstop with Chicago, and this was more in 2019 than 2020 because Grandal came in in 2020, mm -hmm. Lucas mm -hmm. Giolito was one of the worst starting pitchers in Major League Baseball. Yep. It is because of James McCann that Lucas Giolito transformed into one of the, at least in my opinion, one of the top 10 starters in the American League. So you look at the transformation of Giolito and the fact that even with, and I'll correct myself, it was a four-year deal the White Sox gave Grandal, not a three-year deal. But even with the type of money that they gave Yasmani Grandal, you saw in 2020, it was still James McCann behind the dish every time that Lucas Giolito went to the bump. And that's mm -hmm. who was behind the dish when Giolito threw his no-hitter. So yep. to me, the value that I see in one case with one guy is going to make all the difference in the world when you talk about a Mets rotation that top to bottom could be one of the top five in baseball. And I'll get to that in a little bit, but I think that's the true value in James McCann. And I worked in minor league baseball for five years, Mike. The one thing that I'll say at least about a catcher is that it doesn't necessarily matter what you do. You just can't be like a Mike Zanino where you're hitting like 150 and your strikeout rates 40%. What right. you need to be is somebody that if you hit 220, fine. But if you make your pitching staff better, that's where your value comes in more than anything you can do offensively. Yep. I'm, I'm, look, I'm an up-the-middle defense guy. That's why I liked Jimenez before they got Lindor. Uh, you know, I wanted them. I, I said, look, I'll sacrifice some offense. You know, I don't want them to be 
like you said, Mike Zunino. I mean, I, I think that sometimes people have been so pigeonholed into one thing and specialization that the other thing goes wide out, way out the window. Uh, you know, then people say, well, you like Brandon Nimmo in center field, but I think his offense is, is good enough where if you position him, I'll deal with it because there's an offensive component. And I don't think he's as bad behind, you know, in that position as, I mean, Wilson Ramos, I defended in 2019, but he became boxy and bad last year. I mean, I think he's even talked about losing some weight in Detroit. And when that bat went south, unless you're a Mike Piazza type bat, uh, and Yasmani Grandel is a good bat. I mean, he gets on base. He has power. So he can make up for any deficiencies. Um, but I want to catch and throw guy. I've always said that. Uh, I want to catch and throw guy behind the plate because to me, it's an incredibly important position. And it can make the difference, like you just said, with a Giolito and making a good pitcher grade and a not-so-good pitcher average and so on and so forth. We're here with Mike Silva of the Talking Mets podcast here on MLB Morning Coffee's 30 Teams in 30 Days. Mike, I have a little internal thing that I do with my buddies. We put together every year the best team of guys that we've never heard of. And I would say the captain of that team last year is Jeff McNeil. And I didn't realize until I went to his stat line that he had 23 homers in 2019 and made the all-star team. <laughs> Tell me yeah. a little bit more about Jeff McNeil and That's why funny. this guy isn't talked about more on a national level. Because uh, in all three years in the bigs, he's hit over 300. And, I mean, I'm just looking at the numbers. They're nothing spectacular, but one of the best contact guys in baseball. Like, in 2019, he struck out only 75 times in 510 at-bats. In the modern game, that's, that's an good. incredible strikeout rate. Uh, uh, you, I love Jeff McNeil, and what's funny is uh, – I'm not a, I mean, look, we, we talk prospects here in, in New York. You know, what I do in the Talking Mets podcast, uh, prospects are a part of it. McNeil was one of those guys that was drafted unheralded. And I think because he was injured and really didn't play a lot in the minor leagues, nobody talked about him. Then all of a sudden, early uh, 2018 uh, in Binghamton, I hear about this guy, McNeil and Alonzo hitting all these home runs. And I'm like, who are these guys, right? And it, it, you, you as a minor league guy, I don't know how much time you spent in the Eastern League. But I've spent a lot of time covering games in Trenton. I've been up to Binghamton. Those are not hitter ballparks. And when it's cold in those places, forget about it. Add Brooklyn into that. So numbers never are good up and down the system in the Northeast, especially as you go to uh, upstate New York. Um, so, he, he, you know, they call him up. He hits pretty well in a small sample size at the end of 18. They almost include him in the Edwin Diaz trade. But I remember when they that name was floated around, I'm like, nah, this guy makes contact. This guy's got that attitude you know a guy that could play professional golf he's a great golfer uh, i know that's looked at negatively but unlike with cespedes i don't think he's i think he's used the golf kind of to make himself better uh hits for power and what's interesting in 2019 he had two kind of seasons the first half he was more of a contact guy who really didn't hit for power he's sitting like 360 at one point and then as he ev evolved and developed he was more of a power guy a la daniel murphy in the second half with a lower batting average. And now I think he's balancing out. Here's a guy that could probably hit 25 home runs. Uh, he'll probably hit 300. Uh, he's not a bad uh, defensive player and he could play multiple positions. I don't think third base is his best position, but he could play there. He could play second. He's an adequate outfielder. Uh, he got himself hurt with a shoulder last year that kind of derailed him for a couple, uh, you know, last year you get an injury for two, three weeks that kills your season. That's like being out after the year. Um, it's funny that you said no one's talking about him because he is a good player and he's a gamer. And, uh, you know, uh, he, he is a guy that I think 
is going to become one of those heart and soul type guys of the Mets. If he could stay healthy, injuries have been an issue. But um, I would say he's a very much like what we saw out of Daniel Murphy. And I know that's a lazy comparison because everybody uses what they know, right? Um, where he could hit for power, hit for average. And I think he's more versatile and he's better defensively than Murphy. So uh, if you haven't heard about him and you're playing fantasy baseball, tell your buddies, pick him up, especially if nobody wants him, because I think you're going to get some good numbers out of him. My last position player question for you, Mike. What is going to be the role of Kevin Pillar this year? Because the Mets gave him a one-year, $5 million deal, a team option for 2022, which signals to me that they see him being a part of the starting outfield core. Yeah. But Kevin Pillar is also a guy that, I mean, he is what he is. The sample size is large enough to know he's going to hit anywhere in the range from 250 to 280. He's going to be a good defensive outfielder. And he's really not going to give you much power. So what's going to be his role moving into this year and potentially next? I think he'll definitely be the guy that's going to spell Nimmo and or Dom Smith and Dom Smith in the corner or Nimmo in center field against the tough lefty. I think that that's, you know, I know, I know those guys are going to want to play against lefties, but I think there are certain lefties out there that you and I know doesn't matter who you are, you know, unless you're Freddie Freeman you probably want to try to have a right-handed equivalent. Uh, I think he'll be a defensive replacement. I know that the defensive metrics have had some question. What's funny is I made it, I tweeted out the other day. I said, you know, I don't care what UZR says. Stratomatic in 2019 told me that Pilar was a one. I don't know if you're a Stratomatic fan, but fielding is one, two, three, four. They had him as a one. So if Stratomatic has him as a one, he's still good defensively. Uh, so defensive replacement, bat off the bench. The Mets have had some issues with their bench over the years. Um, I think in this game, with especially with COVID protocols now, uh, if you are uh, Kevin Pillar, you'll probably get 300 at bats between spelling lefties, defensive replacement. You know, God willing, nobody gets sick, but you know, maybe there's a period where someone's out for a week to 10 days or something like that. Uh, he's a depth piece. I also think that they were anticipating maybe something happening with the DH, where maybe he could come in and 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 play a little bit, you know, on a full time basis. Uh, but what, you know, 300 at bats, he gives you 10 home runs. He hits lefties, plays really good defense, uh, a better version of what they had with Juan Lagares. I know they got a uh, you know, Chicago guy. You had the Chicago uh, Cubs, uh, 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 locked on Cubs guy recently on the show, Albert Amora Jr., top five pick, never really has shown anything. You know, maybe he emerges and has a late career renaissance. But I, I think Pilar was someone that it was established where they knew what they were going to get out of him. And, uh, you know, exactly what I said. He's a depth piece. We are here with Mike Silva of the Talking Mets podcast, previewing the 2021 New York Mets. Mike, you have been awesome so far, and I want to transition onto the pitching staff because we've talked so much time about all these Mets position players, but yet it's going to be the starting rotation that has some of the biggest depth of any team in Major League Baseball. You've got DeGrom. You pick up Carlos Carrasco. Marcus Stroman, I think, is going to end up having a solid 2021 now that you know that he's actually a part of the team. Taiwan Walker looks to be back to what he was in his first stint in Seattle. And David Peterson's a guy that had a really impressive rookie year, not to mention at some point they'll get Noah Syndergaard back. What is your overall evaluation of what the Mets have done to this rotation to really rebuild it in one offseason? The Carrasco move is interesting because Carrasco's kind of, and, I hate, and, and everybody's got him locked in to be old Carrasco. I still want to see more like that. But uh, with Syndergaard being your depth, I've heard a lot of good things about Luke Casey. Um, Peterson has continued to be uh, 
uh, promising. I think the rotation is solid. Where it was in 2019 at the end, and if you go to fan graphs, only the Houston Astros had a better starting rotation in the second half than the Mets. That's when you had DeGrom being DeGrom. Wheeler emerged as maybe 1A. Uh, Stroman came in. Syndergaard had improved where he was the old Syndergaard uh, over there. And Steven Matz actually had a very good uh, second half where he gave you, yeah, he's a number five and he could be a bad number five. And then one day, you know, another day he's pitching like a number three, but that's what you get out of a five starter. I think you have a lot of that similarity with this rotation and you have a little bit of depth with Yamamoto and so on and so forth. I think the key, everyone talks about Carrasco. But I'm willing to accept that maybe at this point, post some of the health issues he's had, uh, you know, he might need some time to round into form. But Strowman is the guy who's talked a big talk, who is on a walk year, has spent a season, and, you know, anybody who follows him on Instagram can see it, trying to hone his craft. He's got, like, with the way he does, like, the funky delivery, has a little that Louis Tion in him. Maybe that's the way to, you know, talks like Muhammad Ali, has Louis Tion in him. He's very confident. Um, he has some character. I know that off the field, you know, he's going to connect with people with social issues. So that always is a, a thing that connects you with the fan base. Um, I think he can be the guy because he's a guy that was an ace in Toronto. They thought him as an ace that could really emerge and make this team go from in the rotation to good to very good. Because, of you know, you don't know what you're going to get out of those back end guys like Peterson and whatnot. And I'm not ready to pencil in Syndergaard to be the old Syndergaard. He's coming off of Tommy John. They could be... Uh, a transition. Look at Zach Wheeler. It took him some time. But if Stroman is good, takes a little bit of pressure off Carrasco, who has to build up a little bit. We're assuming DeGrom is going to be DeGrom. Now, all of a sudden, you have yourself a good rotation. Where I worry about them, and I'm sure that's where you're transitioning, is I'm still not sure about the bullpen. And the bullpen, I know they missed out on Brad Hand, and I wasn't ready to throw Trevor and Will, uh, Rosenthal a bunch of money because not quite sure he's much different than what they got. Um, Edwin Diaz obviously has to show that he can do what he did last year in a full season. I always like Seth Lugo. I think he'll be back. Aaron Loop is uh, intriguing, but we don't know. Um, Trevor May, good pitcher, but this is a guy that was on the scrap heap about two years ago. Um, so there's still a lot of walks in that bullpen. And what drives me crazy, Greg, is that all these teams, exception of maybe the Dodgers and some others, they have all these guys that throw hard but four walks per nine, five walks per nine, six walks per nine. I don't care if you throw 100. I don't care if you strike out 15 per nine innings. When you walk six or seven guys per nine, all it takes is one blue pit, and guess what? Ball game over. So to me, the rotation will be fine. I think it could be very good, and Stroman will play a lot into it. I worry more about the bullpen because, let's face it, best-case scenario, your starter's only going six or seven innings. You're still going to have to get, what, nine outs, you know, six to nine outs every night. Mike, before I do transition to the bullpen, I want to ask about Thor because this is a guy that has not been able to stay healthy for the past few years, and I feel like we're never going to see peak Thor what he was in 2015 when the Mets were one of the best teams in the National League. So I guess my question to you, and one of the best teams in baseball, I should say, I keep forgetting that I always mix up 2014 and 15 Giants and Mets against the Royals. I know somebody played the Royals. Yeah, play the Royals. <laughs> Are we ever going to see what Thor was in his prime again? I think health will certainly factor into that. I guess the question is this. Every pitcher has to evolve throughout their career, whether it be because of injury or because the league catches up with him. Syndergaard throwing 100 is really not special anymore. Remember when he came up? This is only five or six years ago, uh, Greg. 
oh my god 100 miles an hour you know back when we were, we were younger in the late 90s turn of the century i remember when armando benitez came to the mets he was throwing 100 100 like you were god you you know how many people would throw 100 this was like oh my god this is gold well now everybody's throwing 100 so that's not anything special how do you mix up your pitches how do you handle adversity how do you uh, evolve with your repertoire. Uh, he was a below league average pitcher based on baseball reference in 2019. Now it was a bit of a tale of two seasons. I think he was much more Syndergaard in the second half than the first. If you look at advanced metrics, he's a top 15 pitcher. Look, the Mets between the Grom, Syndergaard, Carrasco, um, Stroman, they have like four of the top 25 pitchers in all baseball based on advanced metrics over five years. Now, they all have not performed at that level consistently at different points. Um, so what I hope is this. Is he healthy? And being in a situation where we're not asking him to be the man. Now, if Stroman flops and Carrasco flops, different ballgame. Uh, maybe the Syndergaard of 2016 who came off that magic carpet ride of the World Series and had that big year where he was basically Jacob deGrom, how he is now. And then uh, meeting those expectations, uh, maybe he's, he's not as good as that pitcher. But I certainly think he's a guy that can be a number two, a number three. Goes back to what I said about Lindor. Uh, is that good enough for you and I or for most teams? Yeah. But based on what you want him to be as a fan, is that good enough? Different story. My big concern is he's coming off of a serious injury and he's going to try to come back after a year. Some people need an extra six months. We've seen a lot of, I know elbow surgery is not shoulder surgery, but it's also not just an oil change. So what are our expectations and how can uh, he fit into the big picture? And sometimes those don't align. And, you know, I look at Syndergaard's numbers from uh, 2018, where he was considered something that was very hittable. They're pretty good. And I'll tell you what, there's 29 other teams, including the White Sox you talked about, who probably would take him if he was a free agent right now. So I think it's all a matter of context, but do I think he'll be the Syndergaard of uh, 2016? Let's see how he evolves as a pitcher post Tommy John surgery. And I don't think we'd have that answer right now. Let's move on to the bullpen. And we have a few more questions here for Mike Silva on the talking Mets podcast. Edwin Diaz in his first year in New York was awful last year, much better sub two ERA six saves. Mets didn't really have a true closer. You still have Yuri's Familia, who at his prime was great, had a solid year last year. Seth Lugo had a bad year last year. Now he gets hurt. He's out of the fold for a little bit. Does this team have a true closer, or is it more going to be a closer by committee? And if Diaz returns to what he was last year or even in his prime with the Mariners, is he the guy that's going to end up closing out ball games? 17 and a half strikeouts per nine has to be the closer and he's very nasty against lefties. Um, I think the thing about Diaz and I had, I know a scout that watched him extensively out on the West coast in Seattle. And you could see this just looking at video as uh, you and I as amateurs, uh, very complicated mechanics. And if they don't, and they're very difficult to repeat. Now what makes him effective is that as a hitter, you're always looking at that herky jerky arm and, 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 you know, where's this ball going? what would happen is the ball would float back over the plate. And you know, this, if it's a slider or, or a hanging slider, or as Keith Hernandez calls a helicopter, most big league hitters are going to launch it. Right. I think he was tipping his pitches a little bit. I think there was some that New York in his head, there was no fans last year. So maybe that was a little bit different, but let's also remember 
you're a player. You also have accountability to those eight of the guys behind you. You don't think he feels pressure because those guys just put in a rally to give a 5-4 lead. They worked hard. This mean this win means a lot. You don't think he goes on the mound, blows a save, and feels as bad, if not worse, about what he did to those guys as he did to the guys up in the rafters? Um, so I think he's the closer, and I think he's going to have every chance to close, not because they gave up Jared Kelnick, because I think he's got the best stuff in there. Uh, if he flops, then I think, yeah, I think they're going to have to go by leverage. And this is where bullpens have evolved. I go back to one of the better Mets bullpens they had back in 2006 when they didn't have a good starting rotation and they went to the championship series. You knew you had uh, Moto or Duaner Sanchez when he was healthy in the seventh. You had Holloman in the eighth. You had Billy Wagner in the ninth. And then you switched Feliciano and Chad Bradford early on lefty-righty. That model doesn't work anymore because what you really need and what we're learning is what is the leverage situation that makes sense for these guys? So relievers are a creature of habit. That habit has to go from I'm in, I'm the closer in the ninth to potentially I'm the guy they're going to bring in when the X situation is in play because I could not induce contact or I'm a double play pitcher or whatever it may be. And I think that's where there's a little bit more intelligence and communication. And that's where the manager needs to really be on their game. Because think about what I tell people with relievers. You're sitting in the bullpen, you're spitting sunflower seeds, you're drinking coffee like you and I on this MLB coffee show are drinking right now. We're enjoying a ball game. We're no different than the guy up in the stands. Ring, ring, ring. Hey, get up. All right. Like that, your mind has to change. So, Greg, think about if you do a show, you're sleeping. You're sitting down, watch, or you're watching on your couch uh, a Netflix show. I tap you on the back, Greg. You got you got three and a half minutes. We got to go on the air. You got to go interview Mike Silva. Well, what? Who, who the hell is this guy? You know, not not that easy, right? Not that, that actually easy. is not that inaccurate from this morning, <laughs> given that I'm on the West Coast. <laughs> and, and I was at, I was at work until about midnight last night. Oh, uh, so... you didn't tell me that. We could have made it later. I apologize. <laughs> no, no, no. I told... had to do it early. I, but but it's a good comparison. It, right. It's a, it's exactly what it is. It's like I, I did have my prep work for this interview done last yeah. night, so I will say this. But but right. I, I the point is well taken. Right, and that's and look at all of our jobs. We're in an office. We're focused on something. You get tapped on the shoulder and say, I need you to do this now. Now, you're as a professional, you try to do the best job you can. And I think that's where I always argue people. Yes, they're professionals. Yes, they're obligated to do their job well. But you have to understand relieving is not just about throwing hard. It's not just about understanding the hot zones and the cold zones. It's about understanding your role. And that's where I think this goes all sideways. And it used to be, well, if I'm the seventh inning guy, I could chill out in the, in, in the, the locker room until, you know, whatever and start getting ready. Now it's not like that. Now it's about leverage. There's a lot of intelligence. So, you know, you've got the pitching coach, you've got assistant pitching coaches, you've got bullpen, you've got all this data. How can they make these guys feel prepared? And ultimately, and I said this earlier about Louis Rojas, the thing that fans see, the thing the media sees is the bullpen. They see the bullpen because that's what we could criticize. And that's what I could harp on. They don't see how good he is with his players in communicating. You know, hey, Pete Alonso, I got to bat you seventh after you were the uh, rookie of the year. You think that was an easy conversation last year? Hey, Francisco Lindor, you're slumping. I got to sit you. Those are hard conversations. Robbie Cano, when he was being taken out for defense for Andres Jimenez last year. Those are things we don't see that, from what I understand, he does well. Handling the media in the postgame, we see that. We could see if he does that well or not. 
managing his boss, we don't see, but you'll know if the boss hates him because he's going to get fired, if, if, no matter what he does. The bullpen we see, and that's what determines wins and losses. How many times, Greg, as an MLB guy, does pe- do people complain about the pinch hitter? Never. <laughs> how many people? Never. How many? I mean, maybe defensive replacements, maybe occasionally, you know, why did you leave, so, you know, J.D. Davis, you know, at third base? You know, why did you not take him out and put Luis Guillermo there for deep? All right, I could see that maybe a little bit. It's the bullpen. Why did you bring X in over Y? But we don't know everything. We don't know if they're they're hurting, if they're available. It's also a matter of managing them. Do you really need to bring in your closer with a four-run lead against this team? Because he's not going to be available tomorrow. But this team is the Yankees, and it's Yankee Stadium, and things could go sideways pretty quick. So, yeah, I do need to do that. Versus if it was the Kansas City Royals and it was at City Field, and it's the bottom of the lineup, I could probably get through that with somebody else. So that's where I would answer. Your bullpen, I think, is going to depend. Do they have pieces? Good. I still don't like the walks coming out of that bullpen. I think that's the biggest detriment to the sport is the walks out of bullpens. It, look at every team. Look at the walks per nine. Um, but how you put them in positions to succeed, it was something that was done poorly by Terry Collins for years. Hopefully, uh, Louis Ross could do it better because he has some talent, but it's going to be him putting them in the positions to win and, and, and be prepared that I think will be the difference. Final question here for Mike Silva of the Talking Mets podcast, and we greatly appreciate all the time that you've given us this morning. Everybody talks about the Atlanta Braves as the team that is the perennial favorite to win the NL East. I see the Mets as a team that can compete for the NL East title. So realistically, Mike, as currently constructed, can the Mets win the NL East this year? Yes, I think they can. I think obviously some of the things we talked about have to go well. I don't think uh, here's what I will say. I don't think everything has to go perfect. I think you would agree with that. Not everything. If Carrasco is off to a a tough start, I don't think that that's the end of the world. Um, What's interesting about the Mets, they have an elite offense. They've had that for a couple of years. They have a top five offense. They can score runs. I think that offense will continue to be good. The starting pitching was never the problem in 2019 when they didn't make the playoffs. It's been the bullpen. It's been the kind of guys they have in the bullpen. The Mets bullpens for the last four years have been on par. And I'm going to give this is this is fact. Just go back and look with the 62, 63, 64 Mets, historically bad teams. If the Mets had a bullpen from, let's say, 1993, when they lost 100 in games, they would have made the playoffs. Think about that. The Mets had bullpens that if you take a bad team from the 90s or a bad team maybe from the early 80s and threw that bullpen in instead of the one they had, the Mets of 2019 make the playoffs. And maybe the Mets of 2018 make the playoffs, not so much 2017 because they had uh, starting pitching injuries. But think about that. So if that comes into play and that bullpen could be normal or very good, I think they have a chance to win. Uh, You know, I'm not a predictions guy because, Greg, you and I are sitting here. Would you have predicted two years ago if we had a conversation the Mets would have a manager and a GM that would be hired and fired before they even saw the regular season, back-to-back season? Not just the That's Mets, a- anybody, anybody. <laughs> like, I, I don't think I've seen in my lifetime in Never any seen sport, anything. with the exception yep. of maybe George O'Leary at Notre Dame in college football. Sure. I don't think I've ever seen a coach fired, Mike right. Price at Alabama, a coach right. fired before they ever coached a game. I will tell you the since this is true. The beauty of the growth of what I've done with the Talking Mets podcast has to do with first the fans that listen, and I mean that. Like I don't think people understand, and Greg, you could understand this. People dedicating their time to listen to something, 
is a lot different than a blog post or article on the internet. Because I could click in, oh, this sucks, and pick out of 37 seconds, click out. This you have to dedicate. And when you dedicate each week and you dedicate for the whole majority, if not the whole thing, that's a commitment that's humbling. And what has happened and what allowed me to kind of engage the audiences, and it's a bad thing for some of the things that have happened to the people that have been impacted, but between the managerial search, the, the ownership sale, the hiring, the sign stealing, the firing. I've never seen so much. I mean, the sign stealing thing, it, it's dying down, but I've been listening to The Edge, uh, that podcast that's going through that. There's so much more to come when, this, when the book comes out about this. It's created, you know, Jared Port, a horrible thing that happens, opened up a whole nother conversation in the sport. You know, things that should have been common sense for the sport to, to, to provide uh, uh, stakeholders. Uh, all this stuff has created so much content for to have intelligent conversation like we're having, where I have to tell you the last week, since the game started, I've been bored. I'm like, what am I going to talk about next Sunday? Because some of the things I've talked to you here today, I've brought up on the podcast. It's, it's a new audience, of course, you're listening to. I'm like, does anybody care that Stroman went two scoreless innings? Does anybody care that Luis Guillerme went two for three? Does anybody? Because we've been such in a high octane news cycle, which is good for the podcast. But now it's like the Mets don't have all that drama. They're boring, which is a good thing for the baseball side. It's making the job that you and I do harder. And uh, it's a new thing, a new phase for me. So how can I not that because I'm not about manufactured debate. I hate that. I don't want to come on and agitate people. I want to be honest and bridge the gap between the writers and the fans because I don't see myself as either or. I don't cover the team every day like a beat writer. I also am not fanboy with the, the foam finger up because I can't be that guy. Now you're on video and you can see I have a nice little background with me with memorabilia and all that other stuff. And I love the Mets, but I'm not going to sit here and tell you everything's great when it's not, even though I get, what's funny is I get accused of that. I got accused of that when the Wilpons owner, now I get accused of hating Sandy Alderson. So I get accused for both sides, which I guess means I'm doing my job. But uh, the funny point is, is that it's actually getting boring. And that's a great thing for the fans because that means it's about baseball. And I'm sure there'll be other things and hopefully on the field things because all the off the field stuff is not good for the game. It's not good for growing the game. And um, we need guys like you and I who are long-term baseball fans. We need this game to continue to grow with the product on the field, not with this other nonsense and garbage that's out there. You can follow him on Twitter at Mike Silva Media. He is the host of the Talkin' Mets podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Mike, before I let you go, plug anything else that you want. Uh, well, TalkingMetsPodcast.com, you did a great job. You know, listen to it on Apple Podcasts. Obviously, listen to MLB Coffee. I mean, you got some great stuff. I mean, I started following you on Twitter. Uh, follow me on Twitter at your own peril. When the part with Twitter at Mike Silva Media, sometimes I try to be funny and it doesn't come across or I try to throw. You know, it's funny, Greg, you'll throw an idea out there. Doesn't mean you endorse the idea. Well, what about this? And people are like, well, you know, you know, I don't want to hear your politics. I don't, well, I'm not saying I endorse that. I just want to, you know, hear that. But um, uh, we have a new uh, sponsor this month. Manscaped has jumped into the fray to sponsor the Talking Mets podcast for the month of March. So that's pretty cool when you get a sponsorship. Um, but listen, uh, we're the bridge between the fans and the media talkingmetspodcast.com at Mike Silva media, and obviously MLB coffee. I can't wait to plug this and send this out to my, uh, and, and on the, on Sunday show, uh, because I think you're doing some great stuff there and a value to, uh, the busy baseball fan that, you know, obviously can't go on and get all their information in one place, but they could go to you and look at what you got. 
Mike Silva, thank you so much again for your time. This has been our 30 Teams in 30 Days New York Mets preview tomorrow. We head to is either Toronto or Tampa Bay, but we're talking about the Blue Jays tomorrow. <laughs> Stick around. Thanks yeah. for listening, everybody.